listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the sheltering-in-place location on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, down the road from East Carolina University, but not speaking for my employer or for anyone else, just myself, and I know my guest will do the same, as we always do here. It is March 18th of 2020, and... It seems a lifetime ago that we recorded the previous show, two weeks ago to be exact, March 4th. At that time, I was excited to tell you ECU was heading into spring break and we would be away for a week and then come back tonight with a new live show. Uh, Last Wednesday, at this time, when the show normally would have been recorded, I was sitting on the floor of the family room trying to assemble a gas grill My wife was off visiting a friend at the beach. I was home alone, surrounded by dozens, if not hundreds, of mysterious parts and putting them together one at a time, but calmly, patiently, having some success, listening to pirate baseball. ECU was playing a game that night, and it was a little unusual because the announcer said, by the way, the series this weekend against Columbia, uh, Columbia has announced they're not going to come down to Greenville to play baseball. Uh, They're concerned about this virus news. And that was at the beginning of the game. Nine innings later, uh, everything had changed. Announcements kept coming in. Uh, The games, ECU was looking for a different opponent to replace Columbia. No, there will be no baseball this weekend. No, there will be no fans at the league tournament tomorrow. No, soon there will be no league tournament tomorrow. Next thing you know, no NCAA tournament Uh, Within a day, we got the word here at East Carolina that spring break would be extended for another week. So technically, I'm still on spring break right now. But we would use that week to prepare to convert all of our classes, all our instruction from face-to-face to to online. Students would not return to campus on Monday the 23rd. We would start teaching them uh, over the Internet. And uh, it has gotten progressively more dramatic Uh, At some point, uh, the president and his allies came around to the recognition that this was, in fact, an actual pandemic and not a a piece of fake news. Uh, It is a new world that we're in. So I'm here tonight talking with you. Hopefully you are home and safe wherever you are uh, in the United States or anywhere around the world. The virus, the coronavirus is no respecter of national borders. So wherever you are, uh, follow the advice of experts. Uh, We're just staying in the house here uh, in Greenville, reading books, talking about civil war with you, but not going out anywhere other than to buy food occasionally. It's interesting. I I discovered my my alma mater schools, University of Michigan, is just sending its students home now. They were not on spring break when this all broke out here in the United States. And apparently uh, Harvard, which, as some of you may know, uh, is an institution from which I actually hold a degree. Uh, Harvard has also just is sending their students home now. 
so ECU and the UNC system in general were a couple weeks ahead of the curve, but only because we happened to be on break at that moment. What is most interesting to me is that the leadership in getting people to react here on campus, here in Greenville, uh, did not come from uh, the governor, who, who eventually canceled public schools a few days after the universities did. Uh, and it certainly didn't come from the federal government, which exercised no leadership at all for for many days. It came from sports leagues and universities. The, the NBA's decision to stop playing basketball got the country's attention at a time when other voices were either saying nothing about it or saying don't worry about it or uh, experts warning, but no one listening to them. But when the NBA says we're not going to play, that must mean something. And within a few days, the NCAA said we're not going to play. The NHL said we're not going to play. The universities said we are not sending our teams and we're sending our students home. And the leadership has come from, curiously enough, from academia and from professional sports. Uh, Since then, in the last couple of days, government has started to step up. We've started to hear advice from not just governors, but even from from Washington, that this does need to be taken seriously. Uh, But wherever you are, I hope you're taking it seriously, washing your hands frequently and not making contact with others, keeping social distance away, and listening to Civil War Talk Radio. We will be approaching our 500th anniversary, 500th episode pretty soon uh, in the month ahead. So if you're a new listener, you have 500 hours of listening to keep you entertained and educated uh, while we wait for the eventual running of its course of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Another thing you can read while you're staying inside, uh, and I touched on this two weeks ago, uh, is uh, a book I wrote uh, over 10 years ago now, Did Lincoln Own Slaves and Other Frequently Asked Questions About Abraham Lincoln? As you may recall, if you heard the last show, I was recently uh, cold called by someone who wanted me to, who offered to interview me on a podcast, uh, and that that would boost the sales of my book. I was curious. I thought, well, I'll be the guest on a podcast instead of the host. That sounds like fun. I'll try it. Tell me more. And said, well, now there's some investment on your end. You have to put up $1,200. Really? So, uh, as a science experiment, uh, two weeks ago, I asked you the listener, to buy a copy of my book. And we'll see if that promotion of the book justifies a $1,200 investment. How many book sales do you get for a promotion online? And uh, this is not to benefit me, as I explained. Uh, I've already drawn my advance, and this money will just go to the publisher. But I know you're curious to know. uh, Inquiring, critical-thinking minds want to use empirical evidence to make their decisions. So the answer is, um, in the last seven-day week, uh, I went to the publisher's website and found a record of two sales of the book. Uh, One listener actually emailed me about it, a very nice note. Uh, He heard the show and said, "I'll, I'll participate in the experiment. An average week, there is one sale of the book. So on the one hand, you can say, uh, for By promoting a book on a podcast like this with 60,000 hits every week, uh, every month rather, uh, 
you can you can double your sales, and that seems pretty promising. On the other hand, twelve hundred dollars to generate one book sale, I bet I could offer any one of you listening half of that to buy a copy of the book, maybe even a third of that for four hundred dollars. I'll bet you would buy a copy of the book if I gave you that much money. So there's better ways to promote your books, it turns out, than falling for a cold call sales pitch to appear on a podcast no one listens to and paying them $1,200 to do it. Just amazing. Well, there are other things you can do. You can listen to the show. You can read the books of other authors who are coming up on the show. Uh, next week, we have uh, a, a TBD in the lineup. March 25th, our original guest, Cody Mars, is unable to attend. He is, like me, converting all his classes at College of Charleston into online. Plus, he's got family at home and just too many things happening. So he will not be with us next week. Uh, we'll have a different guest. I'll, I'll put that online at www.impedimentsofwar.org, or Mark Gaffney, who runs the site, will put it up, and we'll know. Uh, But we will be back with a live show one way or another next week, March 25th. On April 1st, April Fool's Day will be taken seriously as Butch Berenger returns to the show. He's written about uh, General Tom Rosser, Custer's Gray Rival, as he calls him, Confederate Cavalry General. On April 8th, uh, Timothy Silver and Judkin Browning have co-written a book on the uh, environmental history of the Civil War, including the disease vector, which is an appropriate thing for us to be talking about. So Tim Silver will be with us. And then on uh, April 15th, uh, Heather Cox Richardson will talk about her new book, How the South Won the Civil War oligarchy, democracy, and the continuing fight for the soul of America. So, lots coming up. Uh, Check them all out at impedimentsofwar.org or the Impediments of War Facebook page. The one more bit of news, I often mention Stephen Ambrose historical tours. As with so many other things, they uh, they are exercising social responsibility and have let me know that the May This Hallowed Ground Tour will not be taking place here in 2020 because of the uh, the pandemic. So uh, if you're planning to go to that, please contact them uh, for what arrangements need to be made if you've already signed up. And if not, clear your calendars for October. The October version of the trip is still on. Hopefully all will be well by then. Uh, and uh, that's really... Well, that's been a lot of news. Uh, there, there's other, uh, other more important things that are being canceled everywhere, so uh, we'll all simply have to make the best of it. Tonight we are talking about Confederate political economy, creating and managing a Southern corporatist nation, a book by Michael Brem Bonner. Uh, Dr. Bonner, are you there? Yes, I am here. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. It, it is, uh, I apologize for taking as long as I did out of our first segment there. This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I've never, I, I think twice in my lifetime now, I've lived through a period where I thought, this is history. This will be talked about, written about, uh, as long as they are writing history. And the first one was the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And this is the mm-hmm. second one. Uh, I, I hope you're okay where you are. I I am Okay. I'm in West Virginia, 
Um, my family is all healthy, and uh, we are prepared to ride out the pandemic um, and just awaiting the next event like everyone else. So, Well, it, it's, I hope this rest of this hour can be a brief intellectual vacation for, for you and me and for everyone listening as we go back to uh, – the 1860s, not normally a time one goes back to to say, oh, that's when things were calm and they knew what was happening. Uh, but by comparison tonight, we can almost do that. Let me start with the title of your book, uh, Confederate Political Economy, Creating and Managing a Southern Corporatist Nation. You know, William Gladstone famously said uh, the Confederates, they've made uh, what is more than either, they have made a nation. Uh, you call it a Southern corporatist nation. Did the Confederates make a nation? From their perspective, they did. Obviously, it was a short-lived nation. <clears throat> and at the very end of the book, I kind of uh, discuss and analyze how corporatism uh, helped Confederate nationalism. Obviously, it ultimately was doomed. But uh, when you look at uh, the beginning uh, in the secession crisis and the constitutional development, um, from their perspective, they had created a nation. Obviously, Abraham Lincoln would never admit that. And mm-hmm. in a book I'm currently working on about the blockade, I've done some research in the British archives, and they, without uh, without uh, question, always called it the so-called Confederate states. Um, and it's interesting you bring up the Gladstone point, um, because the Whigs and the Tories, of course, were uh, at odds over uh, what to do in the 1860s with regards to recognition. But uh, if you if you look at their constitution, their creation of not only armies, which uh, other historians have talked about, the existence of armies being sort of the identity of the Confederate nation, <laughs> I don't think it's uh, problematic to say they created a nation, although it was snuffed out. Uh, rather quickly. So do you also, uh, the other key word in there, and one you just used, uh, a corporatist nation, corporatism, um, that's not a term we see every day, um, even in history, maybe in political science or economics more. Um, How do you define that? Corporatism, one of the first critiques I got of the manuscript several years ago was that uh, they had never seen the word corporatism in the primary documents uh, in the 1860s. It's because political scientists didn't think it up until the late 20th century. Uh, Really around the 1960s and 70s did political scientists start to look at uh, organizational styles and label them as corporatists. So it's kind of a, a obviously much later term than the 1860s, but uh, I actually got the idea for this book when I was in a class at the University of California, Riverside, where I took my PhD, um, uh, when I was taking a class on 20th century Europe. And my professor was discussing uh, organizational systems in governments in the interwar period. And being a Civil War historian, these things started to click. And uh, corporatism, of course, has uh, been across many time periods in many geographical areas. Latin America, they have their own corporatist style. Uh, Europe, uh, not only in the interwar period, um, 
But I think corporatism is there in plain sight. You just don't know what to call it. And um, let me step we in. Can discuss and, that. Well, I do want to discuss that at, at some length. Um, okay. We're going to take a short break. I want to come back and, and, and push further on this definition of corporatism. Uh, but okay. before we get to that, we'll have a few announcements. We'll come back and talk more with our guest, Michael Bonner. He's the author of. Confederate Political Economy, Creating and Managing a Southern Corporatist Nation. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Michael Bonner, author of Confederate Political Economy, Creating and Managing a Southern Corporatist Nation. Uh, We're talking about what corporatism is, a a 20th century concept uh, that refers to governments that are are run by, uh, where the government and and business interests work closely together. Uh, the, The corporations are not literally part of the government, but certainly help formulate the policy. Uh, is did the South have a developed economy, developed industrial economy at the beginning of the Civil War to make to even make corporatism possible? Well, that's where the expedient comes in. Um, so Tredegar Ironworks is a great example, and in the book, I have two chapters on industrial policy. Um, one is for uh, extant industries that could have survived and would have survived had the war not occurred. Tredegar Ironworks is the perfect example in Richmond. Um, 
they had very few of industries, heavy industries, to fight the war uh, that could match the Tredegar. Um, but mm-hmm. there were some industries that they had to uh, subsidize, uh, use government subsidies, which, by the way, was supposed to be illegal in the Confederate Constitution. Um, another nod toward the expedient uh, phrase in the title. Um, there were gaps in which the Confederacy had no production capability at all or extremely limited, uh, for instance, gunpowder. And in that situation, uh, they paid for, uh, they built, and they managed um, the Augusta Gunpowder Factory in Augusta, Georgia. And previous historians had looked at that as an example of state socialism or government ownership of the means of production. Again, I would make the argument that it was just an expedient. It was not something that the Confederacy necessarily wanted to do, but it certainly had to do it if it wanted gunpowder for its armies. So that that expedient in front of the corporatism is very important. They had no preconceived blueprint of creating a corporate state. The war forced them into these very modernist styles of organization. Um, and, of course, the irony being that they are the uh, anti-modern uh, actor in this uh, play uh, when you compare them to the North uh, with the system of slavery. Um, they pretty much, you know, in the words of what James McPherson said, they were... Uh, creating a counter-revolution. The North was the real revolutionary side in the Civil War. Um, (laughs) The South was reacting um, to the takeover of the Republican Party. Um, So they obviously were trying to fight the currents of modernism um, by having to use modern organizational styles themselves. themselves. So, I mean, it's a real irony, and one of the things that appealed to me about the book when I first saw it and thought, I I definitely want to read this one and and, and talk about it on the show, is that people who don't know a lot about the Confederacy uh, sometimes romanticize it as this libertarian paradise of of states' rights and local control and uh, there's no, no powerful central government and that's all Lincoln's fault and the North did that. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. you, you, you argue quite the opposite here. Certainly. Um, the Confederate Constitution, most people, when they discuss it, they talk about what it was trying to achieve uh, with regards to the antebellum political debate. Um, and it certainly listed those things out in the Confederate Constitution. You know, they had the principles of free trade, the opposition to government subsidies, um, principles of states' rights, state supremacy, but all of those were quickly dispatched when the war started. Um, So the one aspect that is often overlooked but was a reality was the excessively strong executive branch uh, with Jefferson Davis had a line-item veto on bills, six-year term. Uh, Appropriations were actually uh, tied to the request of the executive branch. That's another overlooked part of the Confederate Constitution. So my... uh, my analysis of this is uh, that the executive branch and the Confederate Congress created sort of a bilateral, bilateral authoritarian institution that was the Confederate government. They denied the Supreme Court's existence. Uh, it was required by the Constitution, but they never enabled it. 
they debated that in the Congress for two years and finally just gave up on it. So, uh, which, again, ironically, then the state Supreme Courts got to decide the constitutionality of conscription, and the Confederacy ran into trouble with states like North Carolina and some judges um, on that count. But, uh, no, it's, uh, the Confederacy is not a libertarian... <laughs> A libertarian states' rights, uh, localized power uh, area. I mean, it's not it's not that way at all. And in the book, uh, in the fourth chapter, I talk about the Confederate system where I deal with conscription, uh, the domestic well, passport let, system. Let, let me let, let's ahead. hold off on that. I, I, I want to stay on the Constitution for a minute. In your first chapter, you talk about the political okay. culture of the the Confederacy. And you make the point that mm-hmm. many people who look at the Confederate Constitution recognize it looks very, very similar to the United States Constitution with a few additions uh, to protect slavery, and, and people often drop it right there. But you've looked at it much more closely, and, and as you just pointed out, it creates a much stronger executive branch uh, for the reasons you, you gave, the line item veto, the, the six-year term, uh, the appropriations rule. Uh, there's also a rule that the Bills, everything in a bill has to be germane. Uh, you can't stick something in a bill in the Confederate <laughs> Congress that's unrelated. So the president right. knows everything that's in a bill. Uh, it's all these things strengthen the presidency. And then the Supreme Court is really quite a remarkable point that, that historians rarely spend much time on. Uh, the absence of a Confederate Supreme Court, even though it is authorized, why didn't Congress finally vote to establish a Confederate Supreme Court? There were several uh, possible reasons. Uh, the The arguments in Congress, number one, uh, some of it had to do with political rivalries that went back into the antebellum decades. Uh, some people thought that John Campbell, who was going to be on the Supreme Court, was too cozy with the North. Um, John A. Campbell, who eventually served in the Davis administration, uh, they even argued over the pay of what the justices should make. Um, <laughs> so it got it got really into the minutia of whether they should have it. And then by 1863, they it, it just died. They never brought it back up again. Uh, now I will say that uh, the Davis administration did have opinions from his attorneys general, um, <laughs> from his several attorneys general that he could rely on to say, well, I think that this bill that I want to get passed is constitutional. So he was fine to not have an additional opponent. And there were many, uh, obviously, anti-Davis Congress, congressmen in the Confederate mm-hmm. Congress. Uh, I do mention in there that they didn't have political parties. They, they had pro-Davis and anti-Davis factions. And you could one could make the argument that they had uh, pro-secession or pro-war and uh, less pro-war factions. <laughs> I don't want to call mm-hmm. peace faction, but no. uh, hard war and less hard war factions. Um, but if you look at the totality of the legislation that was requested by the executive branch and that was passed by Congress, it's actually there's not that much pushback from Congress. They they complain a lot um, about various. Uh, Various laws, suspension of habeas corpus, uh, they complained about conscription. They certainly compa- complained about the domestic passport system, but they eventually gave in on everything that the executive branch wanted for the most part. 
so you've got this really strong executive branch, and you've got a Congress that is not limited by a Supreme Court saying that's unconstitutional because there is no Supreme Court. Uh, and between them, as you say, they 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 form a, a, a two-headed authoritarian uh, head of state. You mentioned another interesting angle of the Confederate political culture, the, the cult of secrecy, that the Confederate Congress often met in secret. T- tell us about that. And that's correct, secret sessions. And that started as uh, the way that they wanted to do their conduct their constitutional convention in Montgomery, and they just mimicked the founding fathers back in Philadelphia in 1787, who met in secret session. Uh, in my opinion, this became a bad habit. Um, it served a legitimate purpose in 1861. They don't want the press or the incoming Lincoln administration or Northern spies finding out what they're putting in their constitution. So mm-hmm. I can understand why they might want to have some secret sessions uh, during uh, the constitutional convention, but they continued to do so. And it was not very hard to call a secret session. Uh, the house house of representatives changed its rules uh, from two people could call a secret session to, I think they raised it to five. Um, but if there was a sticky debate that the Southern press may not uh, like, like conscription or habeas corpus, they would devolve into secret session. And they habitually used it to discuss uh, controversial legislation. Now, one could make the argument that that's wise because they didn't want the details leaking out. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, it gave the appearance uh, that the most representative body in the Confederacy was meeting behind closed doors and not letting the people know what they were deliberating about. So you've got this this impression, at least, of authoritarianism, of government that is uh, is making decisions not limited by the Constitution. There's no court to enforce that. Uh, the president's not limited by the need for re-election because he has one long term. Uh, the the outcome then, it could easily be an authoritarian state that exercises control over all elements of the economy. And you point out that historians have frequently characterized the Confederacy as having a command economy where the government tells companies what they're going to do, what they're going to make, what they're going to sell things at. But you argue, and you gave Tredegar as an example, of there are private companies that the government neither takes over altogether, which Tredegar remains in private hands, uh, nor does it, you argue it's not really a command economy at all, that it's there's something in the middle. What, what, it's not pure capitalism. Tredegar doesn't sell to the highest bidder. Uh, what is it? Well, it's expedient corporatism. And before I uh, move on to that, and yes. authoritarianism certainly is an aspect of it, but I, I do want to stress that uh, the Confederacy held elections, and right. uh, these Congress people could have been voted out. Now, Jefferson Davis had an election in 1861, technically, but uh, I'm not saying that the Confederacy was necessarily anti-democratic. I think that uh, people who voted for the Confederate Congress uh, actually wanted some of these horrible measures. So uh, authoritarian, uh, but these people were put in office 
by the people who bothered to vote in the Confederate electoral process. So I just wanted to bring that up. Um, no, well, I mean, so, you make that clear that, that throughout many of the things that the Confederates want, uh, a, a Republican, small-R Republican form of government, um, you know, an end of spending money on internal improvements, uh, end of tariffs as policy uh, matters, all these are, are in the Constitution or they all want them. And then, as you, you said a few minutes ago, as soon as the pressures of war start, they just drop them all. Right, right. Uh, they at least made elections a part of this uh, process. And if, if you look, at, I've been working on, uh, as a side project, uh, the 1863 North Carolina congressional elections, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, less, less ardent war candidates uh, tended to do very well in eight of ten congressional districts. So uh, there was an outlet uh, to register one's opinion at the ballot box if, if one could vote. Uh, in the Civil War uh, about uh, the Confederate policy. So to say it's completely authoritarian, uh, it certainly operated that way, but there was some uh, push and shove. And, you know, we've heard stories about the states pushing back uh, about some of these policies for a long time as well. Um, To get to the command economy uh, question, the command economy would necessitate that the Confederate government uh, controlled all aspects of industrial policy, and corporatism was meant to insert the private sector as a co-equal creator of policy, particularly when it comes to industry. Uh, the railroads are a great example. Uh, the railroads in the Confederacy are a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the war broke out, the railroad uh, owners got together and they said, yes, we are gung-ho Confederate patriots. Uh, we are going to ship troops to the front free of charge. We're going to ship freight free of charge. Well, that quickly ended. Uh, between April 1861 and April 1864, they had six conventions. And lo and behold, the freight rates rose after every one of those. So the owners of the railroads got together and established the freight rates, and they basically told the Confederate government what they were going to pay, uh, which is, obviously private control of that one sector of the economy. And to kind of counter that, the Confederate Congress did try to deal with this. They created a a railroad superintendent who was a government liaison or overseer. Um, And he was actually, the law that was passed on May 1st, 1863, actually established someone, but then they allowed for the railroad uh, managers to pick the person to fill the slot. So it's, like asking the fox to watch the hen house. Um, so essentially, until the Confederacy passed a, a, a law, and it wasn't until February of 1865 that had teeth in it that allowed the Confederate government to actually control the railroads, and by then it was too late. Um, so that's a perfect example of private dominance of official national policy. And, so it, you know, there have been... Go ahead. Well, I just want to say, but, it, but it's not, um, but the policy is made by the railroads in concert. It's it's not free market capitalism. It's not the, the they're not competing with each other. They're getting together exactly. and agreeing, these are the rates we will trade. It's like a government, uh, as in a government-controlled economy, this is the official price. It's just it's being set by the owners of the railroads, not by the government. We have to take another short exactly. break. I, 
we'll come back and talk more about this. Uh, I want, want to ask you uh, more about these these firms that are either state either negotiate with the state or the state-owned examples. But I especially want to ask you about the passport system you mentioned briefly. So we'll do that when we come back. Uh, Talking tonight with Michael Bonner, author of Confederate Political Economy, Creating and Managing a Southern Corporatist Nation. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Michael Bonner about his book, Confederate Political Economy, Creating and Managing a Southern Corporatist Nation. Uh, So, Michael, we were talking about Tredegar Ironworks. Everyone listening has heard of that famous uh, industrial complex in Richmond, Virginia, the the, the biggest one in the Confederacy. The uh, here in 2020, we're hearing concerns that the current virus uh, crisis may cause uh, airlines to go out of business. Uh, Ten years ago, uh, 12 years ago, listeners will remember that American banks were bailed out by the government because they were too big to fail. Uh, was Tredegar Ironworks too big to fail? Is that why the Confederate government essentially gave in to uh, the company on the terms it wanted? I love that question. Um, that's a great, <laughs> it's a great comparative. Um, actually, the Confederate government really didn't have a choice but to cave into the Tredegar's demands. It was that important to the war effort. Uh, so, not only was the owner Joseph Reed Anderson connected um, with the uh, Confederate administration, but uh, they were kind of the gold standard. Um, and I mentioned in the book that uh, the Tredegar, and that's just one example that I use of the, mm-hmm. the other privately owned. Um, 
have a symbiotic relationship. The Tredegar could survive had the war not come. It could compete against northern iron manufacturers. Uh, but when the war came, uh, its number one customer was going to be the Confederacy. Uh, it was shut off from northern markets. Uh, and lo and behold, the Confederacy needed them every bit as much or more than the Tredegar needed the Confederacy. So it's sort of a symbiotic relationship. But since the Tredegar already existed, uh, other people saw what, were going, what was going on with the Tredegar and its contract. And in the book, I mention uh, the Shelby Iron Company, which was a brand new uh, entrepreneurial uh, startup in Alabama, uh, kind of the forerunner to the modern iron and steel industry in Alabama. Uh, they modeled their contract uh, on the Tredegar's contract, asking for government subsidies. And I really enjoyed researching that part of it because it it didn't really exist, at least to the degree that it would during the war. It was a small iron concern, and people saw that the Confederate government was paying subsidies, and obviously that demand for iron was going to be uh, around for a while, and they started the Shelby Iron Company. Uh, that story is uh, really a fascinating one of how expedient corporatism works, because it couldn't have started without the war in the Confederacy, uh, and the Confederacy certainly needed it. So it was, again, symbiotic. And and yet, even through the war, it, the Shelby Iron Company would fulfill its contract with the Confederacy and then sell remaining products to private customers at better prices instead of selling them to the government at the government rate uh, when the government desperately needed that iron. Uh if, if Shelby Iron could get more money not selling to the government, they would do that too, profit ahead of patriotism. Uh, correct. And there was always a back and forth. The number one complaint from the Shelby Iron Company and probably every other contractor that worked with the Confederate government was the inflation of the Confederate dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you sign a contract and uh, you know that's worth half as much six months later. Uh, so they felt like they were being uh, abused. In, in that sense. Um, but I, I think every person who dealt with the Confederate government in that regard kind of felt that way, like they needed to make their money somehow. Um, now, the state-owned ones I also found fascinating. The Augusta Powder Factory uh, is just a phenomenal story, and I certainly didn't write the uh, definitive history of that. There's been some other uh, wonderful studies out there. But that one is just amazing from start to finish. The money is provided by the Confederate government. The manager is appointed by the Ordnance Bureau. George Washington Raines runs the Augusta Powder Factory. Josiah Gorgas, who I consider to be one of the most overlooked uh, geniuses of the Civil War, uh, managed this constellation of uh, industries that really sprung up overnight. Kind of an oversimplification, but it was a mammoth undertaking to get these uh, industries up and off the ground. Um, but the corporatist part, and just to go back to that, uh, mm-hmm. the symbiotic relationship, um, and I'm glad that you started off this segment by talking about modern-day symbiosis between the government and private industry. I think you hit mm-hmm. the nail on the head. Banks, airlines, energy, um, corporatism is around us all the time. We deal with it every day, but it's in plain sight, and so we don't recognize it for what it is. Uh, 
but almost every major industry is so uh, involved with government interaction, depending on fiscal policy, environmental policy, uh, they have skin in the game. Um, so it's not that the government tells people, uh, tells corporations to do this in a command economy. Maybe, maybe in some historical examples, but I think this corporatism allows us to talk about a nuanced uh, organizational style that allows government, private industry, and usually, uh, at least in the European examples of the 20th century, labor was the third leg of that stool. I've always liked to think of corporatism as a three-legged stool with one leg being government, one leg being private uh, ownership or private companies, and the third leg being labor. Uh, but in the absence of labor unions, uh, we have to kind of, and obviously in the case of the Confederacy, labor is a, a glaring uh, problem for that easy analogy. Well, you, you make a, a reference in, in the book a couple of times to the idea of a general strike by Southern labor, uh, as, as we see in Europe in the 20th century. If if the enslaved laborers of the South had somehow uh, decided among themselves all to, to to down tools and stop working, that would have crippled the Southern economy. But but as you say, that's that's not going to happen. That's it's a different world. Let me ask because right. we've got like five minutes. I don't want to overlook this. I found this absolutely fascinating. The passport system. Uh, People don't, it, it doesn't get talked about much. You read Mary Chesnut's diary, she mentions you need a piece of paper to travel one place to another, but what, how did it, it but it, it, I learned from your book, it's not just, it, it wasn't started in Richmond, it wasn't a formal uh, a national system, it just sort of grew. Can, can you talk about it where evolved. it came from? Sure, it evolved. Uh, it came from the War Department, so the Provost uh, Bureau uh, ran the passport system, and you, you run across it uh, close to the front lines when soldiers ask for a passport to leave the army and go, you know, let's say from uh, the front lines in Northern Virginia back to Richmond for a few days. Uh, so it's certainly part of the everyday uh, routine of the armies. And I found that it started in places that were close to the front lines. Uh, where Union armies were closed, the passport system, that sort of passport system was in place from the beginning of the war. Um, it only started to spread, and I found these documents in the National Archives. Um, I, it started to spread to places like Richmond. Once Richmond was under threat in 1862, uh, they created a passport office, and uh, they would allow a quota, a certain number of people to go out on uh, each railroad, each turnpike every day. Uh, and those people had to be accounted for. So if you got a passport in Richmond, um, then you would say, I'm going to Danville, Virginia. Uh, you'd have to stop in Danville, Virginia and get another passport to say, I'm going to Charlotte, North Carolina on the railroad. By the way, this would be in 1864, but it evolved as the war went along. And by the time you get to 1864, it's an internal security system because on the back of each passport is an oath to the Confederacy that says, I promise to be, uh, I promise to not tell secrets on the Confederacy. I promise that I'm loyal. Uh, it, it's a very, and, and they took uh, down, obviously we were before the age of the photograph or mass produced photograph. 
they took down your height, eye color, so that you better match what your passport said uh, once you got to the next stop because the provost would be there with a rifle and a bayonet. So the and people in the kept- Congress howled about this they, because it was not sure. passed by the Congress. This was simply created by the War Department. And like you said, Mary Chestnut, civilians, uh, politicians, a lot of people were upset with this because it obviously stopped freedom of movement. Now, you, you, uh, you describe how people are, are physically described. So eventually you come back to the passport office for your fourth monthly trip because you're going to your second plantation somewhere. They know who you are uh, and they just give it to you or you're a suspected spy, you're on a list, they're not going to give it to you. You compared it to the frequent flyer and no-fly lists that airlines keep today. Right. I, I thought that was I an interesting that, analogy. Uh, sure, and I think that the domestic passport system in the Confederacy was uh, um, the beginning of a modern database uh, saying who is loyal to the Confederacy and who is not. And that if you tried to travel enough, they would uh, figure out whether you were legitimately traveling or whether you were a spy or whether you were suspicious. Uh, But that was one of the most enjoyable parts of working on this book was uh, researching that because the the, uh, documents were sparse and all over the place. But what I tried to do was compare what the domestic passport system looked like in March of 1862 uh, and what it looked like in March of 1864 because the records were hit or miss. So I tried to develop its evolution from those two points. And you have some charts showing how many, you know, hundreds or dozens of people would be allowed on a given road or a given turnpike or a given railroad each day. Uh, so really, it, it is an organized system, and it sharply limits uh, individual liberty in the Confederacy. And another point you make uh, briefly is that as a society, they had experience with people traveling with passes because uh, enslaved people always had to have some form of paper on their person to indicate why they were where they were if they were off their plantation. Uh, so, so this is not a new That's thing for correct. us. And I actually ran across those in the same box at the National Archives, sometimes on backs of pieces of wallpaper, sometimes on scraps of paper. Um, <laughs> so, and they were in the same box mixed up with uh, these citizens who were traveling to and from around in the Confederacy. But, I was uh, very pleased with what I was able to find out about the domestic passport system. And to me, it was just one more piece of the puzzle um, in, in an attempt to control. And you, you could make, one could make the argument, too, um, because recent scholarship has shown that Union POWs were roaming around the South in 1864, early mm-hmm. 1865. One could make the argument that there's a legitimate reason to ask these questions uh, for security purposes. Um, but it's certainly a, a definite, it, it's certainly a piece of what I call the Confederate system, that along with conscription uh, to control the society uh, in a society that at war. But it's, it's very 20th century if you think about it, too, because a lot of societies have done that since. Well, and that really gets us to the heart of the of what you've you've written here, that this is all... Uh, there's a legitimate reason for it, even though it goes against the, the ideology of a, a free people, uh, just as the idea of state-owned businesses uh, w- was not born of some desire to create a socialist 
uh, state, although you cite some historians who've argued that, you argue uh, against it and say that this is expediency. They, they have to win a war, and so they have to go against all these other things they want to do. Uh, $64 question in the last two minutes, uh, how successful was it? Uh, could they have done better? They were dictated by circumstance. I, I do make the argument that this helped them to prolong uh, their experiment. Uh, had they stuck to the ideals of 1861 and, let's say, not gone forward with conscription, uh, I don't think the Civil War lasts for another year. Uh, these these policies were forced upon them, and they managed them the best that they could. So in the long run, I think that expedient corporatism was a positive uh, for Confederate nationalism, and it helped them survive in the short term. Uh, they couldn't have foreseen that they were going to lose. However, I do disagree with historians who think that uh, industrial development and industrial policy during the war years was a precursor to uh, postbellum industrial development because the situation is completely different. So in that sense, I'm not uh, in agreement with those who argue for continuity from the war into the post-war years in terms of industrial policy. Now, I do, and go ahead. Well, I'd say we're at the end of our time. I was just going to make a quick point that you you note the legacy of this this corporatism is seen in World War One, where the government and industry cooperate. The War Industries Board uh, uh, and the the information uh, controls and so on are, are all there. There's a lot in this book. It's really interesting. Was this a dissertation? May I ask? It was. Yes. It, it it reads like it in the best way that it, it's precise and logical and and evidence based and makes its argument all the things you you want you you train students to do well this really does those uh, but unlike many dissertations it's well written it it's, it's it was pleasant to read uh, so so I, I thoroughly enjoyed it um, it may not be to every reader's taste every listener's taste uh, but if you have any interest in these issues. Uh, listeners, you want to read Confederate Political Economy, Creating and Managing a Southern Corporatist Nation. It's by our guest, Michael Brem Bonner. He is the author, and he's been with us tonight. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, to you and to all listeners, thank you for listening, and stay safe. Keep your social distance. Wash your hands. And uh, we'll talk to you next week on more Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.